I want to give you a quick update on the state of this class because unfortunately we're going to have to make some pivots. So uh, with Pastor Clint out last week, uh, I was over in confirmation, sorry for the break. We have a new members class that has to start for many schedule reasons you don't care about uh, in the end of October. So we have a pretty time limited set of weeks for this class, which is unfortunate because I was going to spend a couple weeks on today. And so we were going to talk about Peter. We were going to do part one and we were going to talk about Peter in the New Testament uh, because there's really no disciple that the Bible tells us more about than Peter. And then I was going to spend part two, which was going to be next week. And we were going to talk about Peter outside the Bible, talk about some of the archaeological things and some of the church tradition things. And we were going to tease that out. Uh, I'm just telling you today, we're doing all of Peter. And so uh, it's going to be a quick uh, uh, flyby sort of overview. And I'm going to foolishly try to do it all because I'm young and naive. So we're going we're gonna to do as much as we can, and I'm going to throw a lot of sort of citations at you. And uh, if you want to look back over it in fuller detail, I'm happy to email you the notes where I have all of it listed out. Um, and I didn't physically write it, so it's legible. Um, anyone who knows me knows my handwriting is not legible. So that said, uh, no more ado. Let's just jump right into it. Like I said, the Apostle Peter... Uh, there's really no apostle spoken of in scripture at more length than Peter. Uh, some of that is because Peter is ultimately going to be uh, the key figure of the handoff from Jesus and uh, then the disciples and then to the burgeoning church. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but some of that is just uh, what is recorded in the Gospels. Jesus gave a lot of time and attention in his conversations with Peter. Uh, you might remember Jesus famously says in John 1, 42, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And those two words are both significant. So Cephas is Aramaic. That would have been in the common language of that region. And it means rock or pebble. And then the word, uh, what we have translated Peter uh, means in the Greek rock. Some scholars read into that. They say that Cephas had the idea of a small rock. Uh, I, I'm sorry. That uh, No, that's right. Cephas in Aramaic had the idea of small rock. And then Petros, which we have translated as Peter, that it had in mind a big rock. The idea being, I'm taking this small person and I'm going to be building this large church on top of him. Some scholars even make the point that Jesus may be talking about himself. Now, if you know your church history, you know that this is actually one of the more controversial statements about any disciple in the New Testament. Uh, can someone tell me why? Can you intuit why this would be one of the most controversial statements that Jesus makes? Historically, this is the text that is used to define uh, the role of the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. You might know that to this day, Every pope traces their lineage all the way back to Peter. Now, if you know your, your world history, you might know that there are some very interesting twists and turns in that lineage, such as some popes excommunicating the other pope and political this and that. But uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, the idea is that every papal leader has a tie all the way back to Peter, 
And this is one of the core texts used to justify that that must be so, that if one is to be the Pope, one must have a direct link to Peter, who is the original rock. And uh, as Presbyterians, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right, let's talk a little bit about Peter. So uh, Peter is, by all accounts, impulsive. Every time that he appears in the New Testament text, he seems to have his own twist. You might remember that Peter is the disciple who sees Jesus walking in water, says, uh, just call out to me and I'll come to you. And he walks on water until he sees the waves are big and then he falls in and then Jesus pulls him out. But to Peter's credit, he got out of the boat. He's impulsive. He moves quickly. You might remember that Peter is on top of the mountain in the transfiguration. He sees Jesus transformed and Peter being impulsive thinks, this is great. I like this. We should make this a thing. And so he says, let's build booths or small temples for all three of you, Jesus and the two prophets. And Jesus, as he often does, says, hold it back, Peter. You're, getting, you're going a little ahead of yourself here. And uh, this goes on and on and on. Uh, Peter's the only disciple recorded in the Gospels who rebukes Jesus. Uh, he says to Jesus, uh, you shouldn't say this. And you might remember that this comes from uh, Matthew 16, 23. Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and says, Get behind me, Satan. So, uh, rather harsh rebuke from Jesus. We don't see that coming to any other disciple, uh, really, in the New Testament. Quite frankly, one scholar that I read in uh, preparation for today made a, a comment I thought very thought-provoking. He said, there's no difference between the Peter who denies Jesus three times and the Judas who sells Jesus, except for... Peter confesses his sin, and Judas takes it, his guilt, to his grave. And it's true. Uh, there are two disciples who betrayed Jesus, but only one of them confessed that sin. And if one goes on to read the letters in First uh, and Second Peter, which, are, of course, are attributed to Peter, uh, in those letters, he talks a great deal about guilt. He talks a great deal about confession. And when you think about the reality of his history— that makes a lot of sense. The, the reality that Peter is one who had to, at many turns, confess his sins to Christ. Uh, moving forward here, uh, we're moving a little bit to archaeology to make a point. Um, if you go to Israel today, you can actually go to Peter's house. Uh, more specifically, his mother's house. And this is what happened. There was a church built on top of the house. And it was always said that that was his house. And so what they did was, I'm going to keep moving because that is a horrible place to put that slide. Uh, this, is an, this is a current picture. Those are the original walls of Peter's house. And this is underneath this church. So they destroyed the church that was built in the medieval ages, and they then built this structure, which as you can see these pillars, is literally built above ground. So if you are standing in the middle of this church, you're standing in the middle of this ancient structure, the center of that octagon there, being the original house itself. And what the monks did was they just began digging down layer by layer. And what they discovered was the church from literally the beginning, the ancient church, had begun living inside that house in the very days of Jesus. And as you get closer and closer and go through these walls, 
there are more and more inscriptions in the walls. And ultimately, each one of those walls represents tens or twenties, in some cases hundreds of years later, them building the house out so they could store more people. Uh, but as it is today, uh, you could actually go and visit uh, this home. And you might think, why is that significant? Uh, it's significant because, and I have a whole section here, you may be able to see the entire top of my page, are all of the Bible references that references this house. Uh, Jesus was fed in this house by Peter's mother. Uh, Jesus healed in this house. He taught in this house. In fact, an anecdote that I read was that it's interesting that Peter would live in this house at all. Turns out that it's sort of across the tracks a little bit. It's not on the part of the neighborhood that one would expect a good Jewish person to have a house. But it turns out you remember that Peter was a fisherman by trade. It turns out the taxes were higher on the other side of the tracks for fishermen. So it's thought that Peter and his family built a house on the other side of the tracks so that they would have a lower tax rate for their fishing business. So Peter seems to have had some administrative savvy. But regardless, uh, that house still exists. You can go visit it today. And it is been preserved by the church from the very beginning, believed that this is one of the most preserved places we know that Jesus himself physically visited and taught in uh, multiple times. So uh, all that said, we're going to skip through some of those passages, uh, but there's a lot of references to that. Okay, we're going to move on to talk about the early church. And I underestimated how far back you were and how small the screen was. So next week, I'll make a print out of this for you because uh, I think we'll, we'll use something like this again. But you see here uh, is modern-day Spain, and all the way over here, we're getting closer to Syria, Iraq. This is sort of the, the range that you're looking at here with uh, Great Britain up here. So what you see in purple is the major concentration of the Jewish population in the first century A.D., what you see in red is a still Jewish population, but less than in purple. Are you, are you all with me? So what Peter is attributed as doing in his own life is, of course, starting here in Jerusalem. And the reality is, as I shared with you last time we were together, the year 70 AD was this major inflection point when finally the Roman Empire uh, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish uh, faith and those who were worshiping there. And so what happened with all of the apostles, but specifically with Peter, was that they were driven north. And so uh, one of the major stopping points on the way north was Antioch. Antioch was a major hub of the Christian faith in the first uh, generation of the church, which makes sense because it's at the northernmost point here, uh, bending around the Mediterranean Sea. So you go west towards Rome, or you go east towards Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia was particularly important because it was the major population of Jewish-speaking, Jewish-faith people. The reason for that being, uh, everything that follows the Song of Solomon in your Old Testament up to the first chapter of Matthew, the intertestamental period is what it's called, within that period, the entire nation of Israel was essentially militarily conquered and the people were deported east. So where are they still living? The place they were deported, right? So there's a substantial amount of the Jewish uh, people who are living, of course, down here by Babylon, but all throughout 
this Mediterranean region. What this means is the first attributed movement of Peter in the early church was that he went north to Antioch, and then he went east into Mesopotamia, all the way here to Babylon. And of course, if you know your history moving forward, you know that the eastern church, the Byzantine church, is going to come out of that eastern sector of the faith. And this is such a generative region of the faith and the early church. It is from here, it's said, that they sent missionaries even within the lifetime of the disciples to make it all the way to China and to India. So this is a major sort of eastern outpost for the Christian faith. And there are writings that attribute Peter himself having made it to there. That said, uh, Peter actually has quite a interesting sort of lore that goes with him. So church history tells us that Peter ended his last days and ultimately died in Nero's circus in Rome. We'll end with that here today. Uh, but it is said that Peter himself made it all the way to Great Britain. And the reasoning behind that is there is actually a stone tablet that's been found that uh, is written and inscribed on it coming from this time frame that says the place of St. Peter. Uh, and the British people themselves, now modern scholarship is going to be a little skeptical of this, so I'm just owning this for you, but uh, there are British churches, there are British people who claim Peter as their patron saint because there uh, already, as of around 150 to 175 AD, Christianity was declared the national religion in Great Britain by the rulers of the time, and they had already built its first cathedral called St. Peter's. So there's an ancient tradition uh, that the people of Great Britain claim Peter as their own. If Peter didn't make it there, which a modern scholar would probably tell you that he didn't, what is certain is that while Peter was the sea, at the sea, S-E-E is what they call it, or essentially was functioning as the leader of the Church of Rome. It is written, and as best as I can tell, verified, that he did personally send three missionaries to Great Britain. So, whether he himself was there or not, it's clear that Peter cared about the northern expansion of the church. So, uh, what's interesting is the Roman Catholic Church's fascination with Peter being in Rome. And, and that has to be, and it makes sense historically. Of course, you know that the Western Church has always found Rome to be its center. We know from the New Testament that Rome was an influential church. You might know from the book of Romans that Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's doing so with an uncharacteristic amount of deference. If you read Paul's other letters, he is very instructive. In some cases, demanding. It is clear in his tone to the Romans that Paul is writing with some more distance. It's clear that though he expects them to take what he says seriously, he spends a substantial amount of time on the argument itself, not just his own character reference. And this goes to point out a few things. One, Paul uh, is clearly uh, impressed or interested in the ministry happening in Rome, but there are there is other leadership functioning there that Paul is certainly giving deference to. And scholars would point out that they believe that Peter is that individual, that ultimately Paul is trying to uh, shoot a shot across the bow into another church 
with someone who he equally respects, but is trying to make the case that uh, you need to be careful to not cross over the bounds, which makes sense. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to bore you, but Romans, as the ar- argument goes, is really about how do we make sense of what God is going to do with the Jewish people when all of these Gentiles are the ones carrying the bulk of the church. And that makes sense if you have Peter in Rome, because Peter, as we know, has emphasized the Jewish proclamation of the faith. And uh, you might say, how do we know that? If you look to the book of Acts, Acts can be broken into two basic sections. The first section you might call the Acts of Peter. The second section you might call the Acts of Paul. When you think about it, who's the person who speaks after Pentecost? Peter. Who's the person who sits as judge over the situation with Ananias and Sapphira? Remember when they sold their land and then they tried to pass it off as if they gave all that property? It was Peter. Who was it who was sent to Cornelius? Peter. Who was the one who healed a man just by walking by him to the temple? His shadow crosses him and the man stands up healed. It's Peter. All of this is in the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts. So Peter is very much the center of the Jerusalem conversation. In fact, when Paul goes, by the way, he goes to the church in, I lost it, Antioch. And then he comes back because Paul says, hey, the Gentiles are receiving the gifts of the Spirit. What are we going to do about this? It is Peter who is the only disciple who speaks back down in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council. And then ultimately, Peter has this vision. You might remember this blanket and all the animals. And then he goes and he baptized this Gentile's family. That is the pivotal transformational moment from Act 1 to Act 2. Because at that moment, Peter, in the book of Acts, says that the Gentiles have received the gifts of the Spirit, so therefore they are equal recipients of God's grace and action in the world. At that moment, you won't be surprised to know, the rest of the book of Acts follows not Peter, but Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. So there's a handing off. There's a reality that Peter starts at the center of power, which we know is broken, as the Roman Empire completely destroys it. And then as he shifts his direction west, we see and remember that this is the entire region. Paul in his final journey, you remember Paul wanted to get to Spain, was his ultimate goal. But he never made it to Spain. He essentially traveled within this region right here uh, in his missionary journeys. Ultimately, the only reason he even got to Rome was because he was in Roman captivity, right? It's said that Paul and Peter would have at some point likely crossed paths at their time in Rome. But regardless, that's neither for here nor there. The point is, there's an interesting tension in the scriptures. Because on one hand, Peter is clearly not an enemy of the Gentile church, right? It's very clear that Peter, as it's told in the book of Acts, was open to the conversation about God working in this surprising way. On the other hand, there's no evidence to suggest that Peter ever really went and uh, put his focus upon that missionary effort. The way that Acts tells the story, if we take it at face value, seems to make the point that Peter found his people in the Jewish centers. (laughs) That is where he did his evangelism. And then he trusted Paul and others to do a bulk of the evangelistic work outside of that circle. Uh, That's a little bit of a uh, closer view of that here. I just kind of wanted to show you uh, 
while uh, what would be interesting would be to put Texas on top of this so you could get a sense of scale, right? But for the ancient world, this is a substantial amount of distance for one person to travel. And it, it only goes back to the point that I made in our first time together. That's only possible because of the Roman peace. It's only possible because of roads. Uh, without that kind of commerce and trade that's happening, without that kind of infrastructure, the growth of the early church would be physically impossible. Okay, so I want to talk to you a little bit about... Um, Yeah, we've pretty much covered all that. So I want to just sort of finish up here with the idea of what happens in Rome. So the Roman church uh, has a really interesting history in Peter's time. Because as you know, uh, there was a substantial Roman population of Jewish individuals. There was a substantial economic center in which the Jewish people actually did very well. And uh, it was largely... The thing that the Roman government had going for it was, though they were very militaristic, as long as you didn't pose a threat militarily to Rome, they sort of said, live and let live. I mean, as long as you pay your taxes and you keep your swords uh, down, uh, Rome didn't care what you did. And so since the Jewish people, uh, specifically the cosmopolitan Jewish people, didn't have much of the revolt in them, and because they were wealthy and willing to pay taxes, they were very well looked over by the Roman Empire for a substantial period of time. That all changing with Nero. You know that uh, there's lots of speculation, and I'm sure many of you know your Roman history better than I. Uh, was Nero mentally challenged? You know, whatever he was, he was a very dark and evil individual. However, he got to that place in his life. And ultimately, Nero attributed the burning of Rome to the Christian fellowship. There's no uh, scholarly reason I'm aware of to justify the fact that Christians would have lit Rome on fire. But regardless, he essentially, after this major catastrophic burning in Rome, attributed that to Jewish Christians. And that is when he began his systematic persecution of Christians and Rome. And uh, that is the beginning. It's really not the height, but it's the beginning of the things that you're aware of with the Colosseum. Uh, the the games is, is really what it is. Um, he called it his circus. Um, it was a way of torturing and killing Christians. So there is no historically verified record that Peter was crucified at the hands of Nero because history is told by the winners, not by the losers. But Christian history has always held that Peter was crucified at the hands of Nero and at his own request that Peter was crucified upside down so that he would not be crucified in the same way as the Savior. I mentioned in the sermon last week, if you were with us, uh, an anecdote that grabbed my attention, um, and I think it'll stick with me for a long time. That image of the early church remembering Peter as being bound and watching his wife carried into the middle of the circus and saying to her, remember your Lord. There's something deeply compelling about that vision of a couple. And by the way, I should have said this. This is one of the major distinctives between Peter and Paul. We have no reason to believe that Paul was ever married. In fact, if you're going to make a biblical argument, 
Paul says some stuff about married people that would make you think that he was pretty suspect of the whole arrangement. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, was faithfully married for a very, very long time. Uh, The sense is that Peter and his wife were partners in the ministry that he did all around the known world. So when he lost his wife, Peter was losing someone he'd been with for his entire adult life, most certainly. And then he ultimately would come to his end in Rome as well. Around the 1970s, uh, the Roman church decided that they wanted to take some of the archaeological digging a little bit more seriously to identify Peter. So what they did as they were digging a crypt for the Pope, and I, or a Pope, I'm trying to remember, they were reburying someone, I, and I don't remember who that was, sorry, but they, they were doing some work, and the Pope John Paul uh, asked them to do further extensive work underneath St. Peter's to see uh, what they might find. And as they did work, as recorded in the 70s, they found further crypts and further cemeteries. They kept digging into those, and they found a tomb which was labeled St. Peter. So they called in archaeological experts, and they did all the things that archaeologists do. They wrote lots of papers, and they determined to the best that they could define, it was indeed the original bones of Peter that St. Peter's had been built upon. Uh, This is a scholarly article written and paid for by the Roman Catholic Church who finds all of their leadership structure built upon St. Peter. So it's a little bit of a confirmation bias, possibly, but who am I to say? It might be Peter, right? And fundamentally, the idea being that uh, there he was buried in Rome, following his own execution, which would be, if that is accurate, the most definitive proof that exists that Peter was indeed the leader of the Roman church and did, in fact, die at the hands of Nero in his own crucifixion. So, ultimately, I think what strikes me as we look at Peter is I mentioned how Acts might be divided into part one and part two. I wonder if we might be able to do the same with Peter's life. Bear with me on this. So we know Peter from the Bible. Like I said, we know the most about him as any disciple, really. And what we know about him is he is quick to speak, he's brash, he's impulsive, and he kind of does the thing that seems or feels right in the moment. What you have in the second act of Peter's life, which all seems to change in the moment after he sees Jesus, Peter suddenly stands up in front of the entire Jewish crowd and has the courage to preach. He suddenly has the ability to administrate and do so justly in the early church. He suddenly has the ability to travel and to create church uh, centers in which there's substantial life, such as here in Antioch, then he goes east, then we know that he goes west. There, There seems to be a pivotal changing moment in Peter's life where he goes from the guy who lights fires to the guy who is able to contain the fire and able to help grow and spread it throughout, essentially, at that point, the known world. Uh, Peter seems to be one of those individuals who lives into his name. He's this guy who is, in some ways, when we meet him, small, right? I mean, he's a fisherman, he's a business owner, but not a incredibly important business or he's not incredibly high you know he's got family business right and at the end he's widely considered the entire leader of the 
Christian faith. And it's ultimately that transition that I think is really interesting. How, uh, how this guy, who's largely thought of, you remember the book of Acts, they say, how are these Gentiles speaking? It's interesting that it's not a rags to riches story like we might be accustomed to in America. It's, it's more of a, an unimportant to an unimportant in a different way kind of story. Because in the end, it was never about Peter. And that's the thing that makes, I think, his story really interesting, is in the end, he chooses to be crucified upside down in church tradition, which I think is this beautiful way of pointing to the most important was not the most important. And even the early church's willingness in the story that it would pass on of Peter to say he's influential. Look at the first 11 chapters of Acts, right? Not to deny his importance, but it's to say that his importance is subject to the one that he sought to serve. And it strikes me that that's the story that gets told about Peter in particular. So uh, that's a really... We flew fast. Uh, I'd be interested in questions or thoughts or comments or, th- or, or gaps to fill in. Yes, sir. There's a book written titled uh, the, most two, the Two Most Neglected Books in the Bible, Second Peter and Jude, hmm. about one-third of the way through them. It does not contradict anything that you've said. Well, that I'm glad to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was important to be aware of the fact that there's a whole book written yeah. On the two most neglected, neglected books of the Bible, Second Peter and Jude. Yeah, just to think out loud on that a little bit, I, I do think that this class lands really differently at First Presbyterian Church in Spirit Lake and not First Orthodox Church of Antioch, right? Because for a few reasons. Number one, we can't escape that we're people of the Reformation, And the Reformation is ultimately a group of people who find their fountainhead in the reading of Paul in Romans. Now, they're doing more than that. But theologically, there would be no Reformed movement if there's not Paul and a new reading of the book to the Romans. What's striking about that is we are pretty much exclusively a Gentile church, right? We... we, I have known some people who are Christians who tried to keep kosher for some time or they've tried to learn some of those practices. And I would in no way uh, decry that or speak against that. But we do not, as a rule, and it's a pretty consistent rule, have Jewish ethnic roots. We don't have that sense of connection to that history. But Peter was doing work to preach the gospel to Jesus's brothers and sisters, cousins and uncles, and right? I, we, we miss because of our own context, I think the substantial work that needed to be done in that context. Because as Paul writes to the Romans, this scandalous argument, quite frankly, that God might call the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. If you've ever read Romans, this is, this is the pivotal part of the book where Paul says, what, how do we make sense of the fact that all these Gentiles are becoming Christian, all the Jews are rejecting it? He says, well, God hasn't rejected his people because God promised his people that God is faithful. We know that, right? So what do we make sense of it? Well, maybe God is calling these Gentiles so that the Jews would be 
convicted and jealous, and then they might come to be part of the faith as well someday. The idea that maybe God has chosen the Gentiles so that he might also be faithful to his chosen people, the Israelites. Not a rejection of either, but ultimately the acceptance of both. That, I think, is this really interesting turn to that point, is that is compelling for people of the Reformation to read Paul because he's speaking to us. He's speaking to the outsider, who is now, quite frankly, in our circle, the insider, right? But Peter, as he writes, is doing this this substantial living out of God's promise to, to God's people. When God said, you are my chosen people, Peter and the other disciples took that serious. And they took it so serious, by the way, there is real reason to believe that when they were serving the widows and the orphans in the book of Acts, you remember who administrated that work? It was the 12 disciples. It was Peter at the top. And you remember that that work became so onerous that they actually had to call another 12 who became the deacons of the church. They, they functioned in a way so they could take care of the widows and the orphan. Well, it's interesting because if you look in Jerusalem, it appears that that may have been more universal than just Christians. It, it may have been the Jewish community, a, a, a form of outreach in the midst of their own place. And now it's time to be done. Uh, and the final note on that, I just think is, we might miss the substantial importance of Peter, you use the idea of the underread book of Peter, because number one, it doesn't speak to our context, and number two, it's not a scandal to us that God has grace for us. Because if you're a Reformed person, you know that you need grace. That's a thing we'll club you with over and over again. You need grace. So you heard again. But it is just as scandalous that God would be gracious to the people who the New Testament makes very clear set out to kill him. Makes very clear the people who rejected him. The, the very religious leaders who said, we want you dead at the hands of our greatest enemy, Rome. We want them to kill you, right? And there's a beautiful gospel in Peter going to those people and saying, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he loves you, and he is the fulfillment of God's plan. And if we can hear that, that might be corresponding good news to us, because, by the way, you need grace too.